I think it's important to know, uh, to understand when when one or the other is used because it, it requires different handling. If you if you need to feed an, a probiotic and you need to be alive, you need this product to be alive when you feed it. You need to be more careful with storage in the fridge, prepare it uh, shortly before feeding it. But if you're feeding, for example, a prebiotic, maybe you can mix it in a dry ration and can stay there for a week and there's no problem. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutrition program innovation. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show. I'm Adam Farnolds from North Carolina State University's Feed Milling Program on behalf of Wise Genetics. I'm again joined today for the second time by Federico Podrasic, a PhD candidate at the University of Florida. Um, he is again coming to us from, from Germany. Uh, we had a great conversation the last time we spoke about uh, the use of different cropping types and ensiling technologies to prepare silage for cattle, something that he's been working on along with others in his lab um, as a technology for uh, feeding cattle. So we're, we're kind of stepping out of the feed mill and going into, uh, into the field a little bit for that. Today, we're going to continue our conversation and talk a little bit about the different feed additives of which there are many that can be used in ruminant nutrition. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. So again, Fede, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Adam. It's my pleasure. You bet. So let's just start there with when we talk about feed additives for cattle, what does the range of those look like? What are the some of the different types of additives that we use and what are they used for? Okay, so that, that's a great question. It's a broad uh, topic. Feed additives... Um, are typically ingredients that will go in very small amounts in the diet, uh, less than 1% of the diet. Uh, in the, yes, in the grams per day or micrograms per day. They are, they're, tip, they're normally used with a, a specific objective uh, to, for example, to improve feed efficiency, to alter maybe the microbiome, to enhance immunity, reduce uh, uh, methane emissions and, and those kind of things. They're widely used and they're different uh, out there. And yeah, uh, we've been working in, in our group. I work for the Dr. Nicholas Lorenzo. In our group, we, we do a lot of uh, testing of different additives. 
uh, for different uh, purposes. And yeah, there, there is a lot to discuss about it. There is a lot of um, commercial products out there. I think it's really important to know uh, a bit of the differences and, and to mainly to, to, to have a, an idea of how to decide what to use and when to use. That's, I think that's what I would like to, to communicate today. Absolutely. Okay. So let's, let's just start right there then. So as you mentioned, we've got different um, additives, some of which are classified as medications, some of which might be classified as probiotics. We have uh, things that are out there that might be used to um, mitigate particular hazards that might be present in feed like mycotoxins or something like that. Um, and then you mentioned a big one that is really starting to pick up steam now, things like reducing methane um, and what that might look like. Uh, from a sustainability standpoint, there's a there's a very interesting uh, thing that's happening for those that might not be aware in the United States right now, where there is legislation looking at additives and um, how they might be considered where things maybe in the past based on language would have to be considered as drugs and medications. And today, or, or there's that, that legislation and the people working on it are looking to ways to maybe take some of these things that are acting inside the gut that aren't necessarily changing the physiology of the animal, but are acting inside the gut to do something like reduce methane, um, maybe classified as, as something different. So with all of those in mind, um, let's talk about some of the, the most common things we use that might be including things like um, menensin for, uh, for, for beef cattle and, and in some cases dairy cattle as well. Um, we've got, um, you know, things like, uh, you know, wormers that are fed. And then we have these other additives that are having to do with something like less on the, the animal and its production, but maybe on the environment. So, um, you can, you can choose, like you said, there's a lot to talk about. I'll let you choose where you want to start. Um, so I was just start to, to, to mention to, to do a comparison, what we um, normally fed or almost every feedlot we fed and every uh, growing cattle we receive in a, when they receive concentrate is a demonensin that you mentioned. This type of additive is a ionophore. What it does, it changes the uh, cytoplasm of the of the bacteria that will will have to expend energy to survive. And therefore, they they reduce the reproduction rate. So what you do is you control the growth of certain bacteria with this technology. Bacteria that is the, it makes the animal less efficient, and you move towards another population that will be more efficient in the use of uh, for the animal in the production of BFAs and energy. Typically, what you see when you use manensin, you see an increase in the uh, synthesis of propionic acid in the rumen and the propionic acid is it's it's really beneficial that this fermentation because you don't first you don't lose uh, carbons in form of co2 or methane and the animal obtains more energy so the animal at the end of the day most of studies show that they grow the same but they consume less feed okay so they they have an improvement in the feed efficiency and and therefore the cost uh, and the feed cost of gain that is called. Is called. This is 
probably the the baseline or the, the one that most commonly is used, unless you are in some countries that have already banned it because it's, it's antibiotic and should not be used. But it's not the case of the U.S. Hopefully, it will never be. Uh, hopefully, we, we have monensing for a long time. I want to touch um, also that you mentioned the probiotics. And I want to clarify something about it. There is a... This, the, this group of additives, there, there was a reclassification. Uh, some in the past there were grouped into the direct threat microbials group. Okay, now there is also a, a, an interesting classification that they that is called uh, probiotics, prebiotics, and postbiotics. And, I, and this sounds messy, but it's re- at the end of the day, it's very easy. So when you're talking about uh, products like, like this, probiotic is a live microorganism that you feed. You feed and they will they will grow, multiplicate, they will colonize. They will also alter the their own uh, host uh, microbiome and they will confer health benefits. Okay, if you are using a, a microorganism that is inanimated or or dead or was it's not going to proliferate in the animal. It will, okay, or it was. It's already there when you feed it. That is called a postbiotic, okay, because post post uh, life. Not so. Not necessarily a, a product that is working as a postbiotic. It it will be beneficial alive, or the product alive not not necessarily will will have a, a positive effect. Some do, okay, but it's not necessary. And prebiotic is when we when we use the substrate. So it could be a fiber, a sugar, something that will also follow the same trend. It will, but it will impact the the uh, the own host's micro uh, microbiome. So if you feed a product that will, for example, enhance the growth, enhance the growth of uh, lactic utilization bacteria. Okay, and this will help uh, stabilize rumen pH. Okay, but this, but but this is is not a live, live microorganism. It's not a, a dead microorganism. It's just a, a for example, beta glucan or galacto galactose and glucan. Some some product like this. That is a prebiotic. What is the catch or what is the confusion? Some probiotics or some postbiotics, they also have a prebiotic function. It's not that they work exclusively because of the microorganism that you're feeding, but they are providing growth factors. Because a, pro- a prebiotic is actually that, it's a growth factor. They're providing growth factors for the own uh, microbiome of the host. Okay, so that's the, here is where it, it becomes a bit uh, messy. I think it's important to know uh, to understand when when one or the other is used because it, it requires different handling. If you if you need to feed an a probiotic and you need to be alive, you need this product to be alive when you feed it. You need to be more careful with storage in the fridge, prepare it uh, shortly before feeding it. But if you're feeding, for example, a prebiotic, maybe you can mix it in a dry ration and can stay there for a week and there's no problem. Sure, sure. I was just going to jump in there and, and 
you know, for our, our listeners that it's maybe it's been a long time since they're, uh, since they, they, you know, ruminant nutrition or, you know, never took ruminant nutrition. That's one of the really interesting things about, and, and you've touched on it quite a bit here is about feeding those ruminants is we're so concerned with what's happening in the rumen because in a lot of ways we're feeding the rumen, we're feeding the bacteria in the rumen. And that's the, the volatile fatty acids, the VFAs that you mentioned, that's what then is providing energy um, and, and providing the nutrition to some extent for the cattle versus when we think about you know us or monogastrics eating and it's it's in some way I don't know simpler is the right word but we think about this is the this is the carbohydrate this is the energy this is you know the fat and and in in cattle we're managing this big fermentation vat all the time and sometimes there are bacteria we want more of and sometimes there's bacteria that we want less of and then, you know, we, the weather's going to change. And so we do something different and all these additives can have a huge role in that process. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a great point. Ruminants are different uh, for sure than uh, compared to uh, monogastrics. And for that reason, one of the main difference in the moment when you decide what to, what uh, feed additive to use, there's some that, have had a tremendous impact, or not, I don't know, tremendous, but they have had a notorious impact and utilization has, has grown, for example, for pigs, such as, I don't know, enzymes or things like that. But if you think about the ruminant, they, they still don't have an impact, they still don't help, okay? But you already have a lot of enzymes. You have a rumen with a big machinery of enzymes doing this function. So each for, for an additive to, to really uh, have an impact in a room and it has to be above what you already have. It's a more complex uh, digestion uh, machinery, the, the one you have in a room and that compared to a monogastric. And also uh, another thing I, I want to, so the species is important to understand the difference between the species. I also wanted to, to mention one thing that I think is really important. A lot of the differences between results and, and how uh, an additive may work or not, it depends on other factors that we not always uh, remember to look at. And I'll tell you a good example. Sometimes you can have a product that uh, can help with the digestion, the digestibility, okay? But perhaps it's not is not providing a benefit, or you, you cannot measure a benefit when you have very low levels of intake. If you have a, a cow consuming fat, a low quality hay, okay, and this animal is consuming maybe one point five percent of the body weight, right? This hay and this fiber is going to stay in the rumen for very long time. So the bacteria have plenty of time to degrade it, okay? Whereas if you if you go to a to an animal consuming 3.5% of the body weight, as such as uh, it happens to us in some uh, silage-based diet with uh, beef cattle, or even worse, dairy cattle, they consume way above that. The time the feed stays in the rumen is much shorter. It passes through, and then the bacteria needs to be able to to utilize this and they fail. They we, we know that they have they don't have enough time. 
So in those particular cases is when you see a benefit of some uh, additives because they help to catch uh, the the nutrients in this uh, in this uh, short time that they have to be to be utilized. This is an important thing. Another uh, similar uh, example would be if you are using a, a product in for newly weaned calves, okay, and and they advertise that okay, it can improve the the immune response. Or all right, you may see a benefit if you're working with high risk cattle with animals that have a challenge or a problem. Whereas if you're using it in a a group of cattle that came from a ranch with all the vaccination, with no stress, well-fed, and then it will become, probably will produce the same effect in the animal, but you just will not see a response because you didn't have the underlying problem, right? It's, it's like if you take a Tylenol, but your heart is hurting, you may see a, yeah, you will see a, a benefit, but if your heart, if your head was not hurting, sure, you will not see the benefit, right? Yeah. Nope, so always yeah. consider always consider the the context is important. I think. Sure. Yeah. Let, I want to get into a couple more of the additives, but and, and a question just hit me that I, I thought might be interesting for you to talk about. Can you speak a little bit for those that might be listening um, that are otherwise in an academic environment or or rely on some of this research about? what it's like to to do research with animals like cattle versus a lot of the other food animal species that we do research with poultry uh swine even to some aquaculture what the difference is there when we're working with animals that have usually shorter you know full production times um in many cases unless we're talking about eggs on poultry or something like that layer groups um, but certainly the meat birds or the the meat pigs, um, and and what are some of the challenges of doing uh, cattle based research where you, you're you're working with you know ostensibly less animals and they're much bigger and the amount they eat and how long the studies have to be and that sort of thing. Okay, so f- first I want to clarify something. I uh, for for research food animals, I've worked only with cows and some work with rabbits in Argentina, but it was uh, more in Argentina, I work in a, in a group of my university run by Dr. Uh, Ortega. They, they work with, uh, mainly with clinical trials. We work there when I was in the group. Uh, we work with mouse, rats, rabbits, those kinds of studies. And here in Germany, I'm working with cells, uh, intestinal cells. So I... I haven't uh, done by myself uh, hen or or pig studies. Assume uh, they have they must have their challenges. I can tell you what what I think about the, the challenges on 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 cows or cattle. Um, I think it's important to for for cattle. We need to understand that there is a big um, individual variability, right? You need to try to accommodate for that. You need to work to either or, or block or so group the animals for similar characteristics that will uh, will lead to explain variability or 
try to work with experimental designs that will um, account for that individual variability. For example, doing baseline measurements when you can, when you can, you can take them and increase your repetitions. And there's also one really good thing that you mentioned about time. Some studies or some areas or some topics require more, more time. If you want to see, for example, if you want to see a change in the digestibility, yes, you, you may only need, uh, with a new diet, you may only need 20 days. That's okay. Now, if you want to see a change in the um, mineral deposit in the liver, for example, you might need two months, three months, or longer. Depends Depends also uh, how how is the... Uh, how strong is your treatment, right? How, if you if you compare, for example, when we did one study, no supplementation of selenium, but supplementation of selenium, okay, in 45 days is enough. But when you see maybe a source versus a source with something else or some other uh, change, a small change, for this, I think you may need a longer period to catch it. So it's really... It's science with uh, a lot of common sense and understanding of what they are doing. Yeah, to to run experiments with. I like it a lot. I think uh, it's really nice, and I think it's really good that the universities are working in parallel with the industry, because the industry has their their objective is to know if their product works, but the, we from the university we can add the second part that is. Uh, try to answer a second question. So they, they want to know that the product works. We want to know when and how and why and in what other, uh, in which scenario. For me, it's really important to answer when it works and when it does not work. I want to know that too. And what this is dependent on, right? I think that's the most valuable information for us from the university standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's. I mean, I think that's an excellent point. Um, you know, coming down to any research, and and I think it's a great way uh, that you describe that as when we are working on collaborative projects with um with an industry that that might have a new additive. In this case, we're talking about additives, and they, you know, can we generate data that says that it works? And and okay, yep. And and in this perfect scenario, it worked great. But what happens when they're only on a low quality forage or what happens when they don't have access to this mineral supplementation or, or those same kind of things? Does the product still work or is that data that, that needs to be there? I think that's I think that is some some really um, some really interesting information and a great way to look at how how we you know proceed and how we um, approach research. I think it's a great point. Yeah, and I think uh, I'm I really I feel privileged to come to the University of Florida and now get to Germany. I met a lot of people from the industry and they really, um, they like to to know more about their products. I think there is a lot of responsible companies trying to find uh, true information and that's great. I think this will help in the advance of products and technology for, for the livestock industry. Yep. And as, as you said, I mean, that's, that's kind of our job at the, at the university, right. Is to say, okay, sure. We can test that, but have you thought about this? 
Um, let's uh, let's kind of uh, finish our conversation out here. I think on one of the real hot topics on the additive side, which are those those additives that might be being fed um, to cattle from a sustainability standpoint. Now, this actually goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, and as you as you're talking about with something like menensin, there's even an argument to be made there, a very good argument to be made there of, as you said, it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily that the animals grow bigger or, or faster or, or anything like that. It's it that it improves that feed conversion. And yes, there's a profitability there that the industry likes, but also there's a really good sustainability argument to make there as well. If I can use this additive and therefore it requires less feed. And if it requires less feed, then it requires overall less cropland, less water, et cetera, et cetera, per animal that I'm feeding. One of the other things that that's, that's still though thinking about what the animal is consuming and, and, and what's happening inside. Some of the new things have been related to actually things like methane production and I'm sure as as part of your research and when you go through and do your literature reviews, you get to find all kinds of things and some things that say like cattle are the biggest reason that there's global warming. And then there's this other stuff over here that says actually cattle's not that big of a, of a percentage when you look at it the proper way and just it's statistics and how we choose to, to look at the data in a lot of ways. But it's at least taken hold enough, this idea of reducing methane production that the industry has actively gone out and and universities have actively gone out to look for products and look for ways that we can feed these animals such that maybe there is a reduction in that. So what does that process kind of look like? What are those um, additives actually doing? And, you know, do you see a, a good future for them? Okay. So um, first to, to more or less to center the, the idea, um, I want to mention that yes, uh, as, as to put together, I would say um, reducing the environmental impact and improving efficiency of the animals go hand by hand, right? Uh, so when you when you uh, do simple uh, management uh, decisions such as implementing rotational grazing versus uh, continuous grazing, this will impact the carbon footprint, the animals, the plants will be able to sink more carbon, and the same for, for feed. Um, providing a more adequate diet will will help you. And this was, we had a really nice talk uh, last year in the, the ASAS uh, symposium, uh, symposium, the meeting, the ASAS meeting, and um, they discussed that the, the most beneficial uh, or the, the, the greatest impacts come from a very well-balanced diet. This is the number one thing, is to have a balanced diet. This will reduce your impact. From the feed additives, which is the, the topic we are discussing today, as you mentioned, it's a very, it's very uh, hot topic right now. There is a lot of companies working on it. A lot of being pushed by uh, needs of some countries that are already... Uh, Requesting that the producers take uh, some uh, take some decisions to change this and or reduce their methane emissions, and uh, some countries are also um, subsidizing this. I think there is a good future. As you mentioned, monensin is a really great example. It it reduces feed efficiency, it reduces methane emissions. Uh, so it's sorry, improve feed efficiency, reduce methane emission, and increases uh, growth and and feed utilization in the in the livestock. 
we have several products. Some are still not available. The, the most common or the, the, the most uh, utilized right now only with the with the with the um, idea of reducing methane, it will be a 3NOP is called. It's a synthetic pro a product that interferes with the enzyme that synthesizes uh, methane. However, it has been used. It has been used, but there is still some uh, discussions about it. How to um, how to use what? What are the secondary effects? If it alters or not the intake? If it alters production? It's still in the in being uh, tested. I would say it's still very recent. That's also the, the case, right? Even though there's a lot of people using it, I, I think we will know more in the future years. There's also a big um, interest in algae, for example. And it's working, so it, it can reduce methane. Probably the limitation or some the constraint about algae is that it depends on, so the, the, the most common ones that are used it depends on bromoform, and bromoform has been uh, banned as something, so has been uh, related to some health issues in the people, so... The problem would be if that bromoform ends in the in the feed, in the in the food chain as milk or, or meat. So there is there is research being done there to see where we, we should use algae or not and how if there are other alternatives to the algae containing bromoform and apparently there could be. Tannins is also big um, a big uh, supplement uh, that they are trying to, to, to use to reduce methane is still a bit unclear. And also want to mention one that my uh, in my group has uh, there has been some work. Um, it's uh, the antibodies from avian origin. So these are, and probably you've, you've heard about them. Some people have heard. It's when you, you create an antibody with a, with a hen uh, and you extract from the egg. Uh, my group is, is is still working actively on this, and I think it has a nice future. Hopefully, uh, we'll we'll see in a few years a product uh, from that. My my boss, uh, Di Lorenzo, he's he started working with this uh, type of technologies during his masters and PhD, and he continue. and I think that will be a nice alternative. That it, I think it will be very of little harm or we should not have any problem. So, so most of when we think about, and this is, this is not unique to cattle. I mean, it's true with any of the animals that we feed. Most of the things that we feed um, are either related to, you know, improving nutrition or they're related to um, something to do with a, a feed food safety kind of thing, whether it be you know potential of, of toxins that are present in the the cereal grains like a mycotoxin or um, medications that control diseases. Um, you mentioned enzymes, which go back on the nutritional to make the animal more efficient uh, because they can now digest um, particular products, types of types of um, starch or types of um, uh, bound minerals, whatever the case may be, phytases for phytate, phosphorus, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
with these products that are that are being that are being put out there, obviously everything costs money. It's going to cost me money to buy this product and put it into the feed. Are there any other benefits to these products from any of those other things, a, a nutritional basis or or a food safety basis or anything? Or are these products purely marketed on, you know, spend this X dollars per ton of feed or, or pound of gain uh, intake of animal, whatever it is for the purpose of meeting a sustainability goal? Uh, obviously, that's a huge thing for companies to be able to say, hey, look, we are actively going after some sustainability goals. Um, but a lot of times when we talk about additives that go into animal food, it ends up coming down to, okay, that's great if we can do something like that. Also, is there a nutritional or other benefit to the animal? Do these products have that or are they really marketed purely on um, having companies buy into it in order to meet sustainability efforts? Well, uh, the, the, going back to the first uh, example, monensin, I think it's, it's marketed more on the production uh, benefit than the sustainability, right? Or it was used, I don't know, several years ago, start being used as a improving in the efficiency and not in, in sustainability. Then we realized it was sustainable as well. Um, tannins, they seem, at, especially at lower dose, and there is a, a, we are working in collaboration with Dr. Alejandro Castillo, he from uh, UC Davis, and he has done really nice work and he uh, explained us very well uh, that Apparently, at some lower doses, it can have a really uh, positive impact on the health of the of livestock. The more mechanistic uh, side is still under discussion and research, but it, it seems to have uh, a benefit besides the, the environmental. For DMS, for three NOP, sorry, I don't know. If there is also a production benefit, I doubt at this moment, and maybe there is, but because it was specifically designed to alter the enzyme that uh, uh, creates the, the, the product, so simulates uh, the production of methane in the bacteria, so then I, I doubt it. It will be uh, such a case. For algae, for example, um, I think it can also be beneficial from, uh, it depends on the scale, but the discussion is if it can be beneficial as a, as a feed source, because in some places it's also uh, in high amounts uh, as a protein source or a fat source for the diets, because it's growing, uh, especially in the, in the sea, you can obtain large amounts of, of seaweed. Um, and I want to mention another uh, that we've also been working, Dr. Juan Vargas. He's, he's recently graduated from our group, and he did really nice work uh, with nitrates. And prior to that, Dr. Henry, um, Darren Henry, they work with nitrates. And as you know, uh, in or maybe some people have heard, for ruminants, you can utilize non-protein nitrogen sources as a feed additive. And this uh, this source is so not not only as a fidelity but as a as a diet component, I would say, because you can use it at zero point five, one percent of the diet, one point 
to something. The bacteria in the rumen will uptake that nitrogen and will create new amino acids. Okay. The difference between using normal urea, urea and uh, nitrates, nitrates is that when you use nitrates, they will also the bacteria will also sequestrate hydrogen, and this is and this hydrogen it will not go to the formation of methane. Okay. There is also some some discussion on how the nitrates can also be toxic for uh, methane-producing bacteria. I will not go into the mechanistic detail, but the and, and it can be under discussion. But feeding nitrates, uh, there is a linear reaction with increase it. Now, can we feed nitrates to a level that is feasible in a production system to really see a reduction in, in methane? That's also been studied. Uh, but yeah, this this will have a double benefit. So you will be providing a protein source, and you will be impacting methane emission. Excellent, right. excellent. So uh, that that'll I'm sure that'll be a continued uh, kind of a push pull in the industry as we look towards these these products that can absolutely have a positive impact on on the sustainability of animal agriculture, um, and in this case specifically beef um, and and other ruminant based and, and cattle based productions. Um, but it's going to have that push pull with the uh, the folks that are in charge of nutrition and feed costs and the the folks that are in charge of making decisions on on sustainability and and figuring out where those balances lie. So I think that'll continue to be an interesting, uh, interesting thing to watch occur. Uh, and let me add something uh, like, like a, a thought that I have. I think it's really important that we look in the future with the solutions for, for feeding livestock and, and livestock production in general. They should meet the goals of sustainability and health environment and at the same time be at least uh, pay themselves or be neutral in the cost. And if they can provide a, a, an economic benefit, it's even better. Because at the end of the day, all these alterations may lead to a cost. And this cost needs to be paid by someone, right? Yep. So yep. It's gotta be. I think, uh, yeah. for example, one one is not about the feeding, but the end product. There's some feed loads uh, or some companies that are starting to use their, producing their own biogas to, to for the feed mills, for the production of steam flakes. I think those are the kind of solutions we need to look in for the future. Right? Absolutely. Taking things, uh, the, the lagoons and things that are, that are there as part of the, the wastewater treatment and whatnot and, and being able to cap them, collect the biogas, all that sort of stuff. No, I, I think that's a great point. I think you're absolutely right. That's the, that's the evolution of animal ag that we're going to see over the near and, and probably extended future is balancing out the sustainability of feeding the animals on the input side, the, the cost, as you mentioned, that has to be borne by somebody. And, you know, the companies are still going to want to make a profit. They're, they're in business to make a profit, but the consumers can only afford to pay so much for food and will only pay so much for food. We want things to be very sustainable. That's in everybody's best interest. Obviously, we all would you know, like to have a, a planet to, to live on and, and that's thriving. But at the same time, we also have to meet that cost. And then, of course, there's the animal itself. And, and the animal also has to be healthy and well cared for and everything else is a part of that as well. So that's a, 
that's what keeps the all of us that are that are researching in some some portion of it uh, busy and employed, right? Is there's a lot of questions and they all have to be balanced together. Yeah. So thank you very much. It's been a it's been a great uh, discussion. This and and our previous discussion, I've really appreciated. Uh, again, my guest has been Federico Podversic, uh, who is a uh, PhD candidate at the University of Florida, obviously working in the area of ruminant nutrition. I very much appreciated the conversation, Fede. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you, uh, Adam. It was really uh, nice to join today. My pleasure. Absolutely. For Wise and Ethics from North Carolina State University's Feed Milling Program, I'm Adam Farinols. Thanks for listening to the Feed Science Podcast Show.